The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Happy New Year, Church. No, I'm not confused. In the Christian calendar, it varies a little bit from our cultural yearly calendar. We're actually beginning the Christian year every year in the church, beginning with the first Sunday of Advent all the way until the last Sunday of November, which is known as Christ the King Sunday. We follow and shape the life of the church after the significant moments in the life of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And so this Sunday, we don't begin by announcing His birth, but acknowledging that He was needed and he was longed for by the people of Israel. Our series, Christmas Foretold, is going to require us to put on our thinking caps a little bit because all of us need to understand when there's a significant moment or a significant person, rather, in the Bible or even in any story that we're reading or watching, we all really want to know their origin story. Where did this person come from? What made them the way that they are? Were there any clues in their origin story, they gave an idea, a hint, as to what their purpose would be. Now, all of us in the Western world here in North America would understand during this season, we would expect to see nativities. And even the most irreligious of persons understands that as a reference to the night that Jesus was born. The manger with Mary and Joseph, animals, shepherds, angels. And even the most irreligious of person can appreciate the sentimentality of parents of a newborn, firstborn child. But few people know the deep origins of the promise that Christ comes to fulfill. The next four weeks, we'll be looking at some of those promises ancient in the text, and it will change, hopefully, the story from one of sentimental acknowledgement of new parents on a cold night in Bethlehem to the story of God's grand and powerful redemption of the world. Our story begins today with a good man who has a broken heart. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of my favorite characters in all of Scripture is Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, the adoptive father of Jesus. There's so little we know about him. We know he was a hardworking laborer because of the nature of his profession as either a carpenter or perhaps a stonemason. The word can be used for either. But what we learn about Joseph are not through his words, but rather his actions. And the narrators kind of peek into his internal dialogue. Joseph doesn't speak a word, a singular word in all of the scriptures. But yet we know something about him. We know that he was a devout Jewish man and he was righteous. 
he was so righteous and trustworthy that the God of creation would entrust his earthly son into Joseph's care. But we also know that because he was righteous, he found when he found out that his betrothed was carrying another one's child, he had to dismiss her. In other words, he had to end the legal agreement leading to their marriage. Surely this man is brokenhearted and grieving. But yet, even though he's required by the law to end their relationship before it is formalized, even though he knows that the law requires him to, for her in a sense, to be disgraced because of her situation, he's a good man, and he doesn't want to hurt her, even though she, at this moment, likely has broken his heart. And so the angel of the Lord comes to bring a word of reassurance that this is God's intervention at a divine level. It is a miracle. And the angel goes on to say to him, this child that you will father, you will raise, will be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was not an unusual name in the first century. In fact, it was not one that arose in the first century. It comes from centuries before. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Joshua, which simply means the Lord saves. And as I was reading this story in the recent weeks, planning for this series, and simultaneously going through the through the Bible Bible study that about 35 people in our church are going through. Over eight weeks, we're reading from Genesis to Revelation selected portions. We just finished up the Old Testament. We've got a couple more to go through the New. And that phrase, that Jesus will save His people from their sins, stuck in my head because it reminded me of a conversation I had years ago. In the fall of 2004, my wife and I were dating, almost engaged, and I, would, I went to visit her in Athens, Georgia. And her good friend to this day and close roommate, Megan, um, is Jewish. And Megan kindly arranged for me to have an appointment with her rabbi because I was taking, at the time, a graduate concentrated course in the book of Genesis. I had to write a paper on uh, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, and I was interested to get a Jewish rabbi's perspective on that story. He was kind enough to make time in his schedule for that. And so we met, and in the course of our conversation, as we were taking a walk around the block for about half an hour as we talked, he said early in the conversation, how would you, as a Christian, describe your faith, what it is that you believe? And I said, well, in one sentence, I would say that Christians are those who believe in and follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who is the revealed God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I kind of thought about it, thought, yeah, that's it. That describes God's nature, but how God has been revealed, and ultimately our hope as Christians, that Christ was raised from the dead. That's how I would describe our faith. But he could tell I had to think about it a little bit to kind of put it into one succinct comment, one succinct sentence. And I said, well, how about you as a Jewish person? How would you describe your faith? And without batting an eye, he smiled big and said, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the one who saved us from slavery in Egypt. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God revealed to the patriarchs, and the one whose action delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. I remembered that conversation this week because that phrase from the angel, Jesus will save his people from their sins. And so I went back in the story 
And if you look at just the early major events in the biblical narrative in the first two books of the Bible, you begin with creation. Then in chapter 3, you have the fall of humankind to their disobedience to God. And then the rest of the story is God trying to bring people back into relationship through Israel, ultimately through Christ. But in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abram and Sarai, whose names are changed to Abraham and Sarah. And then Abraham's covenant is passed along to his son Isaac, passed along to his son Jacob. And then Jacob's son Joseph takes the children of Israel, the descendants to this point, down into Egypt. And when Exodus chapter 1 begins, we find that they've now been there four centuries. And the Hebrews were enslaved by the Pharaoh because Pharaoh was concerned that they were going to become so, so large of a group of people that they might overcome the Egyptians. So they've now been enslaved for four centuries. And at the end of chapter 2, we're given a little bit of a glimpse as to the way that God regards the state of the people of Israel. Several years later, the king of Egypt died. The Israelis were groaning beneath their burdens in deep trouble because of their slavery and weeping bitterly before the Lord. He heard their cries from heaven and remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring their descendants back into the land of Canaan. Looking down upon them, he knew that the time had come for their rescue. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, he identifies one who has a background and backstory in Egypt but is now 80 years old watching sheep on the other side of nowhere. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. There's a 20th century painter, Austrian painter named Ernst Fuchs, and he paints this vision of Moses and the burning bush. It has a certain surrealist element to it. You see Moses there kneeling before this bush on the far left-hand side that appears to be kind of wrapped in flames, but it also embodies the angel of the Lord that is speaking, who is speaking out of this bush to Moses. And then in the backdrop, we see the very face of the Creator God through whom uh, is speaking through the angel uh, directly to Moses. I've always loved this story in part because of the subtle humor within it. You heard at the end of chapter 2, God sees the misery, 
God hears their cries. God is moved with compassion. And so God goes and finds Moses and repeats that. I have been listening to the cries of my people and I've been watching what they've been going through and I am moved and I'm going to bring them deliverance. So why don't you go down to Egypt and just make arrangements for them to be freed from slavery? It's very, very subtle. And Moses responds like any of us, like, I am 80. (laughs) I'm watching sheep. I'm a wanted murderer. Why in the world are you asking me to go down and deliver your people from slavery? And then God makes a solemn promise, I will be with you. It was that phrase, I have seen my people's misery and I want to deliver them, that jarred my memory about the life of Moses and then that instruction from the angel to Joseph about what Jesus should be named. So I brought the camera back from the text a little bit in the life of Moses, and I began to look at the significant events in Moses' life. God clearly intends to use Moses as his instrument to deliver the Israelites from slavery, and this becomes the most historical event in the life of Israel through which they understand themselves. In other words, whereas Christians would say we follow the resurrected or risen Savior, the people of Israel, their significant event that they would tie their history to is the freedom from slavery in Egypt. And you hear it all throughout the Old Testament. Here's one small example in Psalm chapter 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. So God brought Israel out of slavery so that God could dwell with God's presence within the people of God. And as I began to think about that significant event in the life of Israel and look at the life of Moses, I noticed these following events in Moses' life. In chapter 1, Moses has a Pharaoh who tries to kill him. There's that horrible story of Pharaoh killing all of the boys that are two years old and younger, and Moses' mother and sister have to save him by hiding him in the small in the small basket in among the reeds on the Nile River. In chapter 4, Moses is called by God after what we just read and goes back down to Egypt at 80 years old. In chapter 12, Moses institutes the Passover meal. Before the 10th plague, he gives them instructions for how to sacrifice the lamb and spread the blood above the door. And then when the angel of death passes over Israel, the angel of death will not enter those households. It's the Passover meal. It becomes the yearly feast for Israel. In chapter 14, they're freed from slavery by God splitting the waters and then passing through the middle of the waters into freedom. Well, then that begins in chapter 15, a 40-year wandering through the desert while they will learn how to be the people of God. Chapter 18, Moses calls 12 tribal leaders together and begins to appoint a leadership structure for their governance. And finally, in chapter 20, He goes up Mount Sinai, and some Bibles say it might be Mount Horeb where he first met God, and he brings down these tablets of stone called the Ten Commandments, which are the synopsis of the 613 laws in the Torah, the ten primary teachings of God. This is the life of Moses who God sent down into Egypt to bring his people out of slavery. Well... God has seen, God has heard, and God has had concern for Israel's suffering. So he sent Moses there into Egypt. This is, when you do Bible study in seminary, what they might teach you as a type. Moses is a type 
T-Y-P-E, which is always the foretelling or foreshadowing of an archetype. It's a biblical person, thing, or action, or event that foreshadows new truths, new actions, or new events. A likeness must exist between the type and the eventual archetype. But the latter is always greater than the original, and both are independent of each other. Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph? You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It was that phrase that sparked my mind back in our recent reading in our class time each week to the life of Moses. And I began to look in the Gospel of Matthew and found these events in the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, King Herod, wicked King Herod, tried to kill Jesus when he massacred all the boys two years old and younger. Matthew chapter 2, under the cover of night, he is taken by Mary and Joseph, and he flees to Egypt to escape the king. In Matthew 3, when he comes out of Egypt, he grows up very quickly. We're not given any details about his growing up life in Matthew's gospel. Immediately, he's 30 years old, and he goes down into the waters of baptism under the hand of his cousin John, and then is raised. And then he departs for a 40-day journey of wilderness temptation, testing his devotion to God. He then, in Matthew 4, begins calling the 12 disciples, each one representing an original tribe of Israel. And then in Matthew chapter 5, like Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the law, Jesus ascends the mount and he gives the Beatitudes. And in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we receive the sermon of his ministry, the, the most central teachings of his life, the Sermon on the Mount. And later in the gospel, he will sit down at the Passover meal with his disciples, but he will reinterpret that meal and give it a new meaning. It will no longer just be remembering their freedom from slavery in Egypt. It will mark his blood and his body, which is poured out for the world for the forgiveness of sins. It's not surprising that there are, say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The biblical number representing perfection. Direct parallels between the life of Israel's greatest lawgiver in the Old Testament and the Son of God who comes as he acknowledges himself in Matthew 5 to bring a new way of viewing all of that law. Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What am I saying to you, friends? That Christmas foretold means we must recognize in Matthew's gospel the life and ministry of Moses who delivered Israel from slavery is a foretelling, a type of the archetype, the life and ministry of Jesus who frees humanity from our bondage to sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul, when he's writing the letter Romans, wants to make analogous the, the, the slavery that Israel was in in Exodus to the slavery to sin that all humanity experiences. Paul will write in chapter 6, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, 
And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. It almost sounds like they're leaving Egypt and going through the waters of the Red Sea into the freedom that God would provide them. But this time, it's in baptism. Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to life as He was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with Him. The word of hope that I would bring to you today on this first Sunday of Advent is not a word that shows up as hope for the first time when that angel whispers into the dream of Joseph. It began centuries before with the mighty act of God's liberation from slavery in Egypt to create a new people, a covenantal people, who would give birth to God's final and ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the work that He comes to do is not only liberation from physical bondage, but a liberation to a new way of life where we don't have to be defined by the worst things we've ever done. It was over 10 years ago at another church in another city that I received an email from someone in the church that I knew but did not know very personally. The request was, could you meet me for lunch tomorrow at this time, at this location? That's all it said. I, I gathered that there was a sense of urgency in their request, and I was available, and so I, of course, made that appointment with them. And when I walked up, I could see a person that seemed to be carrying a 1,000 pounds on their shoulders. And we sat down together. And after the server brought us our waters, before we ever flipped open a menu, there clearly was no time for small talk for them. They said, I want you to know that I told my wife last week that I have been unfaithful for over the last two years. Okay. I finally got so sick of carrying that secret and carrying that lie um, that I just had to tell her that. We're still living in the same house. We're going to do, she graciously has expressed that she wants to work through this. But I need you to know that. Not knowing exactly what he wanted to hear, I said, why did you invite me to lunch to share this with me? I'm glad you did. But why did you invite me to lunch to tell me? And his response surprised me. He said, over the last week, as you can imagine, there are most people in our family and in our friendships who view me as a despicable human being. And they are condemning me. They're dismissing me. And I think I deserve that. I'm not denying that. But then I found this other group, coworkers and friends, who are trying to make me feel better. They're trying to minimize the decisions that I made and telling me that everybody makes mistakes. Come on, what's a little bit of cheating? The reason I asked you, preacher, to come to this lunch is because I don't need somebody to tell me what I already know. I know that my choices have near destroyed my family. I believe that they've broken the heart of God if God will ever even have anything to do with me again. 
I didn't come here to ask you to make me feel better about my choices. I came to ask if it's possible that I actually can be forgiven. Well, thanks be to God, in the midst of a dream of a broken-hearted man, that angel would lean down and say, to you and to me, his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And if Jesus is in some ways the fulfillment of that earlier figure, Moses, I tend to think that maybe before that conversation with Joseph, the Heavenly Father who created you and me was sitting in heaven and leaned over to his son and said, I can hear their cries. I can see their suffering. My heart is moved. So go. And I will be with you. Brothers and sisters, I can't think of a God that would be more worthy of entrusting our lives to than one who would do that. May we pray. Gracious and holy God, free us this Advent season from the temptation to reduce this story to sentimental remembrance or an opportunity simply to be together with loved ones or the giving and receiving of material gifts. Help us to imagine that that first cry of your son on a cool night in Bethlehem was the fulfillment of a story from the very beginning of the covenant that you made. And that covenant promise and offer exists to this moment. And so for each man, woman, boy, and girl who is here, by the power of your spirit, draw us to recognize our need for you and enable us, God, to entrust our lives to you. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 